Warning! Binge mode contains adult content. Ron is a super virgin. <laughs> As Ginny will tell you. Ginny is not. And Ginny's living her best fucking life. So why don't you back off, Ron, and yeah. let your sister be herself. Okay? Let Ginny fuck. Let Ginny do whatever it is that she's <laughs> doing with Dean and other young men at Hogwarts. That's exactly right. Back off. One more warning. Yes. <laughs> Binge mode contains spoilers. <laughs> if you don't yet know why the mouth organ was always a mouth organ, and just to be clear, that's not a cunnilingus joke and a continuation of the prior conversation. It's a different point. Please proceed with extreme caution. Be cautious. And now binge mode. Magic? He repeated in a whisper. That's right. Said Dumbledore. It's, it's magic? What I can do? What is it that you can do? All sorts. Breathed Riddle. A flush of excitement was rising up his neck into his hollowed cheeks. He looked fevered. I can make things move without touching them. I can make animals do what I want them to without training them. I can make bad things happen to people who annoy me. I can make them hurt if I want to. His legs were trembling. He stumbled forward and sat down on the bed again. Staring at his hands, his head bowed as though in prayer. I knew I was different. He whispered to his own quivering fingers. I knew I was special. Always. I knew there was something. Welcome to Binge Mode Harry Potter. Cathartic. I'm Mallory Rubin, executive editor of TheRinger.com. Great website. Joining me today. Yes. Now that he's finished pinning Mundungus against the pub wall by the throat. Where did you get this goblet? It's Ringer Senior Creative. Your headmaster, yes. Jason Concepcion. Mal, he took that from Sirius's house, which is my house now. And it's time yes. for Binge Mode Harry Potter, where we're exploring every facet of the Harry Potter universe. Like Mundungus exploring 12 Grimwald Place. Whether or not you're drinking gin with Mrs. Cole and she needs a drink, please subscribe to this podcast on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. And please rate and review us five points and stars for Binge Mode. Also, Twitter, Instagram, follow us at Binge underscore mode, a.k.a. the underscore, and join our Facebook group, which is only for Binge Mode fans, folks and which is a great place to discuss the ethics of using or pretending to use Felix Felicis during athletic competitions. Speaking of all of our social platforms on The Ringer, by the way, please check out our trailer breakdown yeah! for Fantastic Beasts, The Crimes of Grindelwald, the third and final trailer. We went deep, though you're only getting 15 minutes of the deepness. We went an hour, <laughs> which, by the way, is not bad for us. Honestly, we were impressed with our own discipline and Once restraint. again, this is an aside. <laughs> We did an hour and 20 on a minute and a 20 second yeah. Game of Thrones trailer. Yeah. Unbelievable. On the most recent episode of Binge Mode Harry Potter, we explored how tutelage shapes chapters 8 through 11 of Harry Potter and the Half-Blood Prince. And on today's episode, we're diving into chapters 12 through 15. Requisite spoiler warning for today's binge as always. While those chapters are today's primary focus, we will be going deep. 
on details from all seven books and eight films in the wider Potter canon. Taking the entire series into account from the mm. moment we try to gate crash Slughorn's party. So put on your plum velvet suit. Great suit. Yeah, great suit. I wonder if it's part of the inspiration for the Jude Law Fantastic Beast yeah. corduroy suit ensemble. It looks great. It's time to head to meet the boy who became Lord Voldemort. Mal, I am a podcaster. I have come to offer Tom a place at my show. To help ease him in, let's offer up a brief refresher on what actually happened in Prince Chapters 12 to 15 by climbing aboard the Scarlet Steam Engine of Plot the Hogwarts Express. The year's first trip to Hogsmeade ends with a fright as a clearly imperious Kitty Bell touches a cursed necklace and nearly dies. Harry, remembering the necklace from his second year visit to Borgen and Burks, accuses Malfoy of the crime. Soon after, Harry takes his second private lesson with Dumbledore, and this time sees the preteen version of his good friend Tom, as a younger version of Dumbledore, sadly not Jude Law, informs little Tommy Riddle that he is a wizard and can attend Hogwarts school. The clues about Voldemort's past are starting to form a story, but Harry can't ponder this tale for too long because two things demand far greater attention. First, the upcoming Quidditch match, guys, and how to secretly soothe Ron's nerves, and second, love, because Harry starts to feel some kind of monster raging inside of him every time he sees Ginny wrapped in the arms of Dean. (laughs) Finally, the term draws to a close, and unable to ask Ginny to Slughorn's holiday party, Harry instead goes with Luna as friends. It's very sweet. Outside the party, he overhears Snape questioning Malfoy and, crucially, offering help as he attempts to fulfill his mission. Dun, dun, dun. What mission is that? Harry will find out soon enough. Jason? Yeah. I can make episodes move without recording them. Then let's get out of here. Why are we, <laughs> why are we in the studio right now? <laughs> I can make researchers do what I want them to do. You've been holding back on me. Without training them. You've been really holding back on me, Mallory. <laughs> and that gets us to this episode's big idea. Yes. So let's dive into the pensive to sift through our thoughts. The defining theme of chapters 12 through 15 of Harry Potter and the Half-Blood Prince is warning signs. Chapter 12, Silver and Opals. We've joked quite a bit about the assertion that there is no safer place than Hogwarts. But as we mentioned last episode, with the second Wizarding War raging and Voldemort's strength clearly growing, there really is no safer place at this point. That won't be true by book's end or even by chapter's end, but it is now, and that's in large part because of Albus Dumbledore, the only person Voldemort has ever feared. Dumbledore is, this goes without saying, incredibly powerful, possibly the greatest sorcerer of all time. He defeated Grindelwald in 1945, and we saw him go toe-to-toe with Voldemort at the end of the Battle of the Ministry in Order of the Phoenix. As we learn in this book, he's uncovered Voldemort's Horcrux plan. He has a near incomparable understanding of magic and its history, and while Voldemort's command of the dark arts is unparalleled, Dumbledore understands the former Tom Riddle and knows how to exploit his blind spots. Blind spots like an understanding of love and empathy, sources from which powerful magic flows, magic which Voldemort never acknowledges and thus can never understand. And so it is worrying and ominous that Dumbledore has, of late, just not been around Harry's only glimpsed him twice over the last few weeks. Their promised lessons together seemingly forgotten after the first excursion into the pensive. Harry's sure that Hermione's right. 
Dumbledore has been leaving the school and readers and Harry alike know that whatever the headmaster is up to, hunting for horcruxes, working to find the cave, we learn, has to be vitally important as part of his efforts to thwart the Dark Lord. But is the school safe in his absence? Is Harry? Dumbledore's absence is stirring a familiar feeling in Harry of being left out and forgotten. He and Dumbledore have made such strides together in the opening chapters of this book, sharing a newfound openness. It's not just that Harry's lamenting the absence of a second lesson. It's everything the absence of that lesson represents. He doesn't know that Dumbledore is working to find horcruxes, specifically to ensure that Harry can win. He just thinks that Dumbledore is prioritizing something over him. Mm -hmm. And even if he, on some level, obviously realizes that this has something to do with how to beat Voldemort, he still feels abandoned and not telling Harry what that something is. Dumbledore's moving back into old patterns, withholding information. And it's reasonable for Harry, after everything that he's been through, to fear a return to the old normal. Quote, Dumbledore had said that these lessons were leading to something to do with the prophecy. Harry had felt bolstered, comforted, and now he felt slightly abandoned. For now, he takes his mind off Dumbledore by thinking about the upcoming Hogsmeade weekend and by perusing the Half-Blood Prince's writing. Quote, he did not usually lie in bed reading his textbooks. That sort of behavior, as Ron rightly said, was indecent in anybody except Hermione. (laughs) (laughs) The deeper he gets into the book, the more fascinating the scribbled notes become. Not just tips, suggestions, but what appear to be spells of the prince's own invention. This in itself is something of a portent. Whoever owned this book wasn't just adept at magic, but advanced, pointedly curious, eager to experiment, to improvise. Harry is a gifted student, particularly in defensive magic, combat magic, but he's quite a long ways off from being able to create his own spell. This is not part of his makeup, really, at this point in his life. It's just he doesn't know anything about it. It's never even entered his purview. This is a mind-bogglingly impressive feat for someone who we know was a student when he had this book signifying the prince's formidable precociousness, a sign of how seriously Harry should be taking what he's encountering, because good or bad, it's powerful and should thus be treated with care. Instead, he experiments blindly, recklessly. truly the wildest, among the wildest things he's ever done. It's astonishing. Since the scribbles contain very little information about each spell, with the notable exception of Sectum Sempra, which we will see when we're introduced to that spell later in the story, includes the label... For enemies. Yes. Helpful. Harry attempting them is inherently dangerous, but he's smitten, captivated by the prince's power. And listen, on some level, we can relate. You know, who among us hasn't fallen fully into a world that someone else has built? That's literally what we're doing right here, right now on this podcast. But the key, as Hermione keeps noting, is that Harry doesn't know anything about the architect or the design. He finds a spell. For example, that makes toenails grow alarmingly fast, which he uses on crab. Another that causes the tongue to stick to the roof of someone's mouth, which he uses on filch. And one, mufliado, that proves particularly useful as it fills an area around the caster with an indistinct buzzing, making conversations difficult to overhear. Harry then discovers another, levy corpus, with the letters NVBL in parentheses, nonverbal. Harry doesn't think that he'll be able to do this because he struggled with nonverbal lessons to date in Defense Against the Dark Arts. Quote, On the other hand, he thinks, the prince had proved a much more effective teacher than Snape so far. This line is priceless, given that we will learn that Snape is the prince, further proof that bias and preconceived notions so often blind. Harry decides to test the spell on a sleeping Ron Weasley, which is totally not cool in any way. No, it's really bad. (laughs) Growing toenails 
stuck tongues aren't flesh-severing hexes, though. Again, stay tuned for that. But they're not exactly nice, right? They are some sort of physical control over another person, which, again, should give Harry enough pause to, A, not blindly test a new spell on his friend, especially a spell that's supposed to be conducted non-verbally, which, by definition, remember Snape's lesson, the whole point of a nonverbal spell is to avoid detection, to give the caster an edge, indicating that it's likely a combat spell of some sort. And B, definitely not cool to test this on a sleeping friend without warning him. The spell, it turns out, pulls its target up into the air, quote, as though an invisible hook had hoisted him up by the ankle. Harry has to frantically search for the counterspell, and this is a truly wild display. And in light of Harry's ensuing rejection of Hermione's concerns, a primer for us to anticipate that Harry will not hesitate to continue testing the prince's creations to eventually devastating effect. Hermione is not amused at all by the Levicorpus anecdote. She sees the warning signs. So you just decided to try out an unknown handwritten incantation and see what would happen? Harry deflects this by asking why it would matter if it's handwritten. She says, because it's probably not Ministry of Magic approved. And also, she adds, as Harry and Ron roll their eyes, because I'm starting to think this prince character was a bit dodgy. Uh Who is or was this half-blood prince? Harry is wondered, and now as Hermione forces him to think about who had put their time into inventing an ankle-hanging spell, among others, an incredible possibility occurs to him. Could it be his father, James? Harry tells them that his father used just such a spell, though, crucially, he lies about how he knows this, saying that it was Lupin that told him about it. He actually saw this happen, you'll recall, in Snape's memory stored in the pensive, a moment that will take on even more significance than it already possesses when Snape shouts, You dare use my own spells against me, Mm -hmm. Potter, at Harry after Dumbledore's death and Harry's Sectum Semper attempt. The richness of that irony of these parallel patterns isn't present for Harry here. But the notion that James Potter might be the inventor, not the co-opter, is. The idea that his father could be the half-blood prince stirs in his mind now. Though consider this. Why isn't Harry telling Ron and Hermione the truth about how he knows James used the spell? He's still ashamed of what he witnessed in that memory. That's why. Still haunted by the way his father behaved. There's no excuse for it. Using Levicorpus was part of that, and yet Harry doesn't make the leap to thinking there's something off with this spell itself or the probable motivation behind it. He's also forgetting another time that he's seen it used. Quote, Maybe your dad did use it, Harry, said Hermione, but he's not the only one. We've seen a whole bunch of people use it, in case you've forgotten. Dangling people in the air, making them float along asleep helpless. This, of course is a reference to the Death Eater attack at the Quidditch World Cup and the heinous assault on the Muggle campground manager and his family. Ron says that was different. Quote, they were abusing it. Harry and his dad were just having a laugh. (laughs) (laughs) Harry was just curious, even if recklessly so. It's true. But James, again, as Harry knows, was actively looking to humiliate and shame his foe. We're not equating what James did to what the Death Eaters did, but hand-waving it as just having a laugh is not accurate. The warning signs compound, though Harry keeps pushing back against Hermione's lamentations. Quote, if he'd been a budding Death Eater, he wouldn't have been boasting about being half-blood, would he? Judges? (laughs) No, not true. Snape was, of course, a budding Death Eater. We spent a lot of time bemoaning the fact that Harry and Snape didn't ever find common ground while they were both alive. But it's also important to keep noting that here, Harry's bias is working in reverse, Mm -hmm. blinding him again to some aspects of Snape's true nature, just in the opposite direction this time. 
As Harry mentions blood status, a small voice in the back of his head reminds him that James was a pureblood. But he pushes that wrinkle aside as Hermione fires back with the actual data that should lead Harry to grapple with the less appealing possibilities here. But don't. The Death Eaters can't all be pureblood. There aren't enough pureblood wizards left, said Hermione stubbornly. I expect some of them are half-bloods pretending to be pure. Voldemort's ears or what do snakes have instead of ears? Ear nubs? Ear holes? Yeah, it's like just kind of nubs. They're burning. This conversation ends when, quote, a distraction arrived in the shape of Ginny. Indeed. (laughs) She has a letter for Harry from Dumbledore. Harry's next session is scheduled for Monday evening. The trip into Hogsmeade goes as scheduled, albeit with stricter security, which mostly means Filch, a squib, who wouldn't know magic if it literally came and placed his cat into suspended animation, scanning students with a secrecy sensor. Surely we can do better than this. Can we not? Anyway, our friends encounter Slughorn, who is unsurprisingly in Honeydukes, looking to suck on some pineapples. Uh. The walrus stash professor wants to know where Hadam a boy has been. Harry, that's three of my little suppers you've missed now, said Slughorn, poking him genially in the chest. It won't do, my boy. I'm determined to have you. Scranger loves them, don't you? And she actually does. Uh-huh. She's won't come right out and say it, but it's clear that she's enjoying herself. Harry, we learn, has been deliberately scheduling Quidditch practices for the same time as Slug's parties, in part to make Ron feel less left out. What a great friend. This is actually quite a sweet gesture on Harry's part, though it's not improving Ron's disposition after Harry and his friends break free of Sluggy following Harry's declaration that he can't make Monday's Slug Club. Ron's mood sours. Yet another indication of the ostrification-induced Ron changes to come. Eager for warmth, they head for the three broomsticks. And who should they run into on the way but Mundungus Fletcher? Mundungus, says Harry. Dung Fletch, startled, drops his suitcase, which you'll be shocked to discover is full of stolen items, including a goblet, which Ron recognizes. Harry sees the Black family crest as well. This is from 12 Grimmauld Place. Luckily, Harry's in a good place here. He's achieved full closure. Doesn't take this personally. Not at all. At He's all. very calmly. He's like, oh, what's this? Guys, that's not what happens. <laughs> Harry absolutely loses it. Quote, Harry had pinned Mundungus against the wall of the pub by the throat, holding him fast with one hand. He pulled out his wand. Harry's been prone to rages of late, but this is this is truly this is shocking else. and This scary. is something else, yeah. Yes, I mean, he's threatened people before. He's pointed his wand to people right, before. But he's never put hands on people like this in this way. He's about to strangle him. He is literally strangling him right now. Yes. Triggered by the violation of Sirius's memory, Harry is not himself. And something occurs. There's a flash, bang, Harry feels something. And then Mundungus disapparates, free of Harry's grasp. Inside the three broomsticks, Harry's mood is treacherous. In time, we will learn the true ramifications of Dung's thieving ways. More on this in the seven. Here, Harry is raging. He's screaming. Sensitive information. Can't the order control Mundungus? Can't they at least stop not, him stealing everything great. that's not fixed down when he's at headquarters? Shh, said Hermione desperately, looking around to make sure nobody was listening. There were a couple of warlocks sitting close by who were staring at Harry with great interest, and Zabini was lolling against a pillar not far away. This is a very fraught, dangerous situation. Harry, his friends, and the order are in the Death Eaters' crosshairs, and here they're out in public. Yeah. Voldemort would love to get any member of the Order off the board. And of course, Harry is his ultimate target. And here Harry is in public yelling about the Order of the Phoenix and even dropping references to headquarters without any care for who might be observing. We will eventually discover that Madame Rose Murda, the proprietor of the Three Broomsticks, is Mm. at this very moment under the sway of the Imperious Curse. Harry's passion, in general, 
It's largely a source of strength for him. But at moments like this, when it rules him, it can be a real danger. As he sits, he finds himself thinking that Sirius hated those goblets, hated these objects, these black family objects anyway. Hated everything to do with the house. And he begins to calm. But of course, it's not actually about the goblet. It's about the violation of something sacred, the violation of Sirius's memory. A huge part of Harry's maturation throughout Order of Prince and Hallows is learning how to live with his grief. And that's a challenge that he faces in a way that no one should ever have to, but also a challenge that he'll have to master in order to master himself and thus his foe. Our friend's stay in the Three Broomsticks is brief and fraught. Harry, as we said, is in a foul mood, and Ron still is too because of Slughorn, and it doesn't take long for the boys' respective funks to sour Hermione's mood. She wants Harry to shut his mouth, and she wants Ron to stop oogling Rizmotor's tankards. Ooh, if you know what we're saying. And we think you do. She looks great. When Harry asks Ron what he's staring at, and Ron says nothing, slowly trying to reel his tongue back into his mouth, Hermione replies, I expect nothing's in the back getting more fire whiskey. This is a great line and good for a laugh, but it's also more subtle foreshadowing from J.K. Mm -hmm. here, training us both to see the budding romantic tensions between Ron and Hermione, and to remember that Rosemerida exists and is in this area where shit is about to go down, setting up the eventual imperious reveal to come at book's end. And boy, is it about to go down. The No Safer Place branding does not extend to the path between the village and the school because on the way back to the castle, something strange and terrifying happens. From the book, Harry's thoughts strayed to Ginny as they trudged up the road to Hogwarts through the frozen slush. They had not met up with her, undoubtedly, thought Harry, because she and Dean were cozily closeted in Madame Puddifoot's tea shop, that haunt of happy couples, scowling. He bowed his head against the swirling sleet and trudged on, and just ahead they see Katie Bell, who, by the way, should have been captain, with her friend named Leanne. They're arguing about something that Katie is holding. Leanne grabs at that bundle, Katie pulls it back, and it falls to the ground. From the book again, at once, Katie rose into the air, not as Ron had done, suspended comically by the ankle, but gracefully, her arms outstretched as though she was about to fly. Yet there was something wrong, something eerie. Her hair is described as whipping around her face, and her eyes are closed, but then fly open, and she starts to scream. Our friends rush over to help, and they manage to catch Katie just as she falls to earth, writhing and screaming, clearly not in control of her senses. Harry runs for help and finds Hagrid, who, in a really wonderful moment for him, Mm -hmm. is just instantly a guardian. He scoops up Katie and spirits her off to the castle, and she has clearly been cursed. Hermione is trying to figure out what happened. She asks Leanne to explain, quote, It was when that package tore, sobbed Leanne, pointing at the now sodden brown paper package on the ground, which had split open to reveal a greenish glitter. Ron, poor sweet Wanwan. Poor, poor boy. Just reaches right out. <laughs> poor, poor sweet summer child Ron. To just grab the yes. thing for a closer look. Harry stops him. Don't touch it. He recognizes the necklace, an ornate opal necklace from Borgen and Burks, where he saw it in his second year when he wound up there. He knows that this is cursed. He's seen the label. On the necklace, he's read how many lives it's claimed. And he deduces correctly that Katie must have touched it. But why on earth did she have it? How did Katie get a hold of this, Harry asks. Well, Leanne says, that's why we were arguing. She came back from the bathroom in the three broomsticks holding it, said it was a surprise for somebody at Hogwarts, and she had to deliver it. She looked all funny when she said it. Oh, no, oh, no, I bet she'd been imperious, and I didn't realize. A known-to-be-cursed necklace from a store known to traffic in dark objects where Harry last saw Draco Malfoy 
up to something, Mm -hmm. talking about repairing an object and reserving another, Katie Bell, one of his teammates, acting strangely, possibly imperious, now possibly gravely injured, Hogsmeade, a village just a stone's throw from the safeguards of Hogwarts, seemingly susceptible to foul play despite horrors stationed all around. The warning signs are piling up. Harry carefully collects the necklace and his scarf to bring back to Hogwarts for examination. He's convinced that the necklace is the key to what Draco was doing in Borgen and Burks. He saw Malfoy examine the necklace with his father years ago. He's sure he knows about it. As Ron notes, though, that doesn't explain how Katie came across it in the bathroom of the three broomsticks. It's highly concerning, highly concerning, that instead of helping Harry try to piece together the mystery, Ron and Hermione are more interested in shooting down his Draco suspicions because Harry is right. Draco didn't hand the necklace to Katie directly, but we'll learn in time that Katie was imperious by Madame Rosmerda, who herself was imperious by Draco, and ordered to bring the cursed necklace to Dumbledore. This is the first assassination attempt. Harry is so close, so close to uncovering Draco's plot, and the signs are all around him. But he's meeting resistance every time he speaks. Leanne, meanwhile, is miserable for not recognizing that her friend was likely being mind-controlled. But she at least thwarted the scheme simply enough just by being a good friend with an eye for odd and concerning occurrences. McGonagall meets them for questioning. If you see something, say something, guys, as they say in New York. McGonagall meets them for questioning. Harry gives her the necklace. She in turn hands it off to Filch with specific instructions to give it to Snape, but do not touch it. They go to her office where Leanne explains what happened, then heads off to the hospital wing herself. After asking to speak with Dumbledore and learning that he's still just not around, Harry shares his suspicions with Megalian from the book. I think Draco Malfoy gave Katie that necklace, Professor. Ron and Hermione don't back him up, but they also don't contradict him either. At least not yet. Not now. Harry lays out his thinking. Malfoy was in Bergen and Burks and was looking to have something repaired. The necklace, Harry thinks, must be what Draco needs fixed. McGonagall hears him out, but she is skeptical. Now Hermione jumps in to object. Whatever Draco was interested in, she reminds Harry, he didn't take it with him from Borgen because he thought it would draw too much attention, meaning it must be too loud or too large for him to carry down the street. And of course, she is right. Draco was in there looking to have a vanishing cabinet repaired, and a vanishing cabinet would look quite conspicuous being carried down the street by a teenager. And anyway, Hermione reminds Harry that she asked Borgen about the necklace, and he said nothing about it. And they argue. And then McGonagall pulls them up short. Malfoy wasn't even in Hogsmeade, she says. He was in detention with her. Ah, that's a problem. But hold on. Why was he in detention? Because he hasn't been doing his homework. Okay. We know, based on Draco's prior sucking up to all of his professors and Lucius's Chamber of Secrets comments about how Draco should be ashamed that Hermione beat him in exams, that Draco actually has been a good student. This is notable then, especially on the heels of his Hogwarts Express comments that Harry overheard. If he's not focusing on school, what is he focusing on? This is concerning. What's more, again, even if Hermione, Ron, and McGonagall aren't on board with Harry's Draco claim, they all seem just a touch too comfortable with the idea that a cursed lethal necklace got that close to the school. Now, they're not happy about it, of course. They're taking it seriously. But they seem to be more focused on telling Harry he's wrong than on talking about how this might have happened. Literally, this made it into the hands of a student. That's a problem. The necklace's failure to reach its mark isn't really the point. The necklace's presence is. Mm -hmm. Hermione and Ron, at least, are eager to discuss whom the likely target might have been after they leave McGonagall's. We will learn, of course, that it was Dumbledore, and they discuss that possibility here, along with the possibility of Slughorn, the possibility of Harry. Harry's like, nah, she would have just turned around and given it to me. 
Hermione is so frustrated with Harry when he mentions Malfoy again that she actually stamps her foot in frustration. <laughs> but again, he's kind of on it here. He he's says, very close to it. He's Malfoy so close to it. Malfoy could have used Crab or Goyle or another Death Eater. And though that's not the case here, he will go on to use Crab and Goyle disguised using Polyjuice Potion as lookouts in front of the room of requirement throughout the year. As Harry, Ron, and Hermione enter the common room here, Ron laments how unslick the whole attack was, how likely to fail, and Hermione agrees, noting how poorly thought out it was. Dumbledore will go on atop the tower to, in essence, echo the sentiment, noting that Draco's heart never really seemed to be in it. How about Harry? Quote, But since when has Malfoy been one of the world's great thinkers? That's a great point. Asked Harry. <laughs> Neither Ron nor Hermione answered him. Quite a strong point. Chapter 13, The Secret Riddle. Yes. The next day... News about Katie Bell is spread throughout the school. Harry arrives at Dumbledore's office at 8 o'clock Monday evening for his appointed time for his lesson, feeling somewhat skeptical that the headmaster will actually be there, considering uh-huh. that he has not been around the school in recent weeks. However, he is there. Albus brings up the Katie incident, and Harry asks how she's doing. Dumbledore says, still quite poor, but she got lucky, merely brushing the necklace through a teeny hole in her glove, he says. Had she put it on, had she even held it in her ungloved hand, she would have died, perhaps instantly. Luckily, Professor Snape was able to do enough to prevent a rapid spread of the curse. And Harry is confused now. Why bring Katie to Snape, Mm -hmm. not Madame Pomfrey? Mm -hmm. So he asks that. Snape, Dumbledore says, knows more about the dark arts than Pomfrey. Like, duh. Come on, can we just think about this for a second, Harry? (laughs) Snape, the learned hallows, also halted the curse the ring put on Dumbledore though he's only able to halt that temporarily, not remove it entirely. Harry, of course, does not know that here, and he's in an inquisitive mood, so he pushes on. Where were you this weekend, sir? Harry asks. Phineas Nigel is making grunting noises over there in the portrait. I would rather not say just now, Dumbledore. (laughs) However, I shall tell you in due course. (laughs) Harry is startled by this reply, which is more encouraging than he had hoped, and still an incredibly low bar, by the way. (laughs) He then brings up Mundungus. That mangy old half-blood has been stealing black heirlooms, says Phineas Nigellus upon hearing what Mundungus has done. And then Harry airs his allegations about Draco's involvement in the Katie Bell affair. Dumbledore, who, as we'll later learn, already knows all about Draco's plan. Uh Quite a bit more about it than Harry, in Uh fact, brushes this off, saying merely that he, quote, She'll take all appropriate measures to investigate anyone who might have had a hand in Katie's accident. But what concerns me now, Harry, is our lesson. Uh And Harry resents this. If the lessons matter so much, why are we doing this so long after the first one? But he should be taking note of what kinds of questions Dumbledore is and isn't willing to answer. Yes. He won't yet share where he's been or what's happened to his hand, nor will he indulge in a conversation about a student suspect. All of these are urgent matters. Dumbledore's evasiveness in these areas don't indicate a lack of information. On the contrary, it portends how very much there is to say and how crucial it is that that information stay closely held. For now, it's lesson time. Just going to say quickly that this is one of my all-time favorite chapters. This one gives me chills. Voldemort is an incredible creation, and him rising from the cauldron in Goblet Mm -hmm. is— the hairs on the back of my neck stand up straight. Yes. That said, that was more about a moment. I don't think I've ever been truly afraid of him until this chapter. Yeah. Because it's this chapter where you're like, "Mm, there's something 
deeply, deeply, deeply wrong with him in a way that is truly evil. You know, at times he seems evil in a way that you're familiar with in fiction, but there's something really, really eerie about seeing him as a child and seeing how off he is. Yeah, I think it transcends fiction because it forces us to think about nature versus nurture and the very core of humanity. It's incredible work. Let's dive in. Much like Dumbledore and Harry because Dumbledore is uncorking another bottle and Harry watches as the memories swirl in the pensive. Quote, you will remember, I am sure, that we left the tale of Lord Voldemort's beginnings at the point where the handsome muggle Tom Riddle had abandoned his witch wife, Merope and returned to his family home in Little Hangleton. Merope was left alone in London, expecting the baby who would one day become Lord Voldemort. Like, just that line, the baby who would one day become Lord Voldemort. Harry asks how Dumbledore knows that Merope was in London specifically. And the headmaster, it turns out, has a memory from one Caractacus Burke, the co-founder of Jason's favorite store, Borgen and Burke's. Dumbledore brings the figure of Burke up out of the pensive. And we learn that he bought Slytherin's locket from Merope when she was in the depths of her despair, far along in her pregnancy. It's a worrying coincidence, isn't it, that yet again, yep. Borgen and Burks, the very shop that Harry and Dumbledore were just discussing regarding Draco, is surfacing again in our story. Won't be the last time either, as we'll learn in a later lesson, a later memory, about young Tom Riddle. He was an employee at the shop. Some quick spells from Burke confirmed that the locket was what it was purported to be. For this priceless object, Burke paid a desperate woman, pregnant and destitute, a mere 10 galleons. Pretty despicable. (laughs) So fucking gross. And sent her on her way. Harry is indignant. But she could do magic, said Harry impatiently. She could have got food and everything for herself by magic, couldn't she? Well, Dumbledore has a theory about this. Just a theory, you understand. But an educated one. Quote, I am guessing again, but I am sure I am right. (laughs) Just a classic Dumbledore flex. The guess? Quote, when her husband abandoned her, Merope stopped using magic. I do not think that she wanted to be a witch any longer. Of course, it is also possible that her unrequited love and the attendant despair sapped her of her powers. That can happen. We are, of course, seeing it happen right now in the story with Tonks, though we won't realize it until later when we learn about her fractured relationship with Lupin. This discussion point is also yet another reminder of the role that love can play in magic, of the connection between the two. That force studied in the locked room at the Department of Mysteries can fundamentally alter lives, crushing those who are deprived of it and sustaining those who feel it. Dumbledore continues, quote, In any case, as you are about to see, Merope refused to raise her wand even to save her own life. This strikes a real chord for Harry, whose mother, of course, sacrificed everything her very life, just so she could give him a chance to survive. And he can't believe that Merope seemingly wouldn't do the same for her child. Quote, she wouldn't even stay alive for her son? This is a heartbreaking question laid in with the emotional and psychological weight of Harry's entire past. He's always been afraid of the parallels between himself and Voldemort. Those fears, like the figure of Burke, are rising to the surface now. Quote, Dumbledore raised his eyebrows. Could you possibly be feeling sorry for Lord Voldemort? No, said Harry quickly. (laughs) But she had a choice, didn't she? Not like my mother. Your mother had a choice too, said Dumbledore gently. This is a powerful moment. A reminder of the gift that Lily gave to Harry, of the strength of her love, and also 
reminder, as Dumbledore says, of how deeply Merope mm-hmm. deserves our pity. She didn't want to give up. She wanted a family that she could love and that would love her back in a way that she had never experienced before. We see here what can happen when that love and the courage and conviction that stem from it are absent. Then Dumbledore and Harry dive back into the pensive, and this time into Dumbledore's own memory. Yes. From the book, I think you will find it both rich in detail and satisfyingly accurate. Incredible. They find the younger Dumbledore in London at the orphanage where young Tom Riddle grew up. The younger Dumbledore, clad in his plum velvet suit, first speaks to Mrs. Cole, the matron of the orphanage. She asks if he's family. No, I'm a teacher. I've come to offer Tom a place at my school. Those fateful words. There's an almost dreamlike quality to this entire exchange, watching a man as overtly magical as Dumbledore, as powerful as anyone in the world, sit calmly in this room explaining about his school. But Mrs. Cole is canny and streetwise. Why does he want Tom? Dumbledore says, we believe he has qualities we are looking for. Indeed. And many, they're not. (laughs) But he doesn't know that yet, of course. Mrs. Cole keeps asking questions. Something seems wrong about this. And young Albus has to use a bit of magic in order to allay her suspicions, a jinxed piece of parchment to sway her, and some gin to soothe her. He's well-intentioned here, trying to pull a hopeless young boy into a world of wonder to offer the same blissful rescue that Hagrid will go on to give Harry and Stone. But it's also yet another moment where we see how gods of the magical world move muggles around like chess pieces to get what they want. Yes. It is not an equal relationship by any means. Uh-uh. And in this case, at least, the intentions are pure. And Mrs. Cole isn't suffering. In fact, she's quite happy to get young Tom off of her hands because it quickly becomes clear that she is not a fan no. of him at all. The pictures she paints, in fact, of the young man in her charge and the circumstances of his arrival are troubling and full of ominous portent. Merope came to them, she says, on New Year's Eve. She says, we took her in, and she had the baby within the hour, and she was dead in another hour. A tragic and miserable end to her life. Dumbledore asks if Merope said anything about the boy's father before he died. Merope did. She told Mrs. Cole that she hoped the baby looked like his father, and we'll learn that she got her wish. Nearly every account of Tom Riddle Sr. and Tom Riddle, the son, mentioned their good looks. Looks that helped them charm. Looks that will abandon Voldemort entirely as he leaves his humanity behind. Mrs. Cole continues, she told me he was to be named Tom for his father, and Marvolo for her father. Yes, I know, funny name, isn't it? We wondered whether she came from a circus. And she said the boy's surname was to be Riddle. And she died soon after that without another word. They named the baby as requested. But, as Mrs. Cole says, no Tom, nor Marvolo, nor any other family member ever came for the boy. Quote, he stayed in the orphanage and he's been here ever since. Remember what Harry's good friend Tom said to him in the Chamber of Secrets. Quote, you think I was going to use my filthy muggle father's name forever? I, in whose veins runs the blood of Salazar Slytherin himself through my mother's side, I keep the name of a foul, common muggle who abandoned me even before I was born just because he found out his wife was a witch. We'll learn later in this chapter that Tom initially thought his father must have been the magical being, his mother the mere mortal, because she had, as Dumbledore will later put it, succumbed to the shameful human weakness of death. Here, we're learning about the moments that informed those beliefs, those decisions. And then unprompted Mrs. Cole, the drink in her gut, the pink spots on her cheeks says, 
He's a funny boy. Yes, said Dumbledore. I thought he might be. That makes the hair on my neck stand up, that line. Part of the unrivaled brilliance of Half-Blood Prince, as we were just discussing when trying to explain why we love this chapter in this book so much, is that it gives us a front row seat for witnessing the making of evil, the birth of evil. And in so doing, it asks us to consider whether evil is born or made. As we'll see in the coming pages, there was already plenty to wonder and worry about with young Tom. Mm -hmm. But he, like his mother, also deserves at least the consideration of our empathy at this point. Look at his circumstances. He was abandoned. He never knew friendship or love. It's reasonable to ask what chance he ever had. It is just as reasonable, of course, to note that Harry also grew up absent real affection, the victim of neglect and trauma. Here again, we must tap into one of the story's central themes. It is our choices. Consider what Mrs. Cole says here about Tom, and consider how Dumbledore reacts. Harry was a funny boy, too. In some ways, all witches and wizards are. They're different. They're other. That doesn't have to be bad. It can be a precious gift. But if you're made to feel that it's bad, maybe it can break you forever. And now a quick break for a word from our sponsors. Today's Binge Bone is brought to you by Miller Lite. Look, yeah, here at The Ringer, mm-hmm. we have our disagreements. It's true. But there shouldn't be any debate about this. Yeah. Miller Lite is the great-tasting light beer. With only 96 calories and 3.2 grams of carbs, that's fewer calories and half the carbs Bud Light. So there's really nothing more to talk about. If you have a real argument, let us hear it. Until then, stick with Miller Lite. Miller Lite. Hold true. Today's Binge Mode is also brought to you by Audible. Introducing Audible Originals, a new member benefit. Ooh! Audible Originals are exclusive audio titles created by celebrated storytellers from worlds as diverse as theater, journalism, literature, and more. Every month, Audible members get one credit for any audiobook, plus two Audible Originals from a changing selection that you can't get anywhere else. You also get access to audio fitness and health workouts. Oh my. Created exclusively for Audible. Audible is the largest selection of audiobooks on the planet, which lets you fill your fall with more stories like Harry Potter yes, and the please. Chamber of Secrets, A Game of Thrones, Dune. Love Dune. Love Dune. Watership Down. Hilled. Hilled, great one. Listening with Audible lets you get more books in your life. Because with the free Audible app, you can enjoy them anytime, mm-hmm. anywhere, at home, at the gym, while commuting, or doing chores. Plus, your books are yours to keep. With Audible, you can go back and re-listen anytime, even if you cancel your membership. Get your first audiobook free and choose two titles from a curated list of Audible originals when you try Audible for 30 days. Visit audible.com slash binge or text binge to... Five zero zero five zero zero. That's a u d i b l e. dot com slash b i n g e, or text binge to five zero zero five zero zero. And binge mode was our name. Oh, Mrs. Cole says that Tom never cried, and when he got older, the oddness of him continued and grew. From the book, he's definitely got a place at your school, you say? Definitely, said Dumbledore. And nothing I can say can change that? Nothing, said Dumbledore. You'll be taking him away, whatever? Whatever, repeated Dumbledore gravely. 
Now, on the one hand, credit to Dumbledore for understanding that a magical boy growing up in the muggle world, even in the best of circumstances, might have struck others as strange and thus dangerous, and a boy in Tom's situation doubly so. But also, this line of questioning from Mrs. Cole is already beginning to raise warning flags. What does she have to share about Tom that might be bad enough to result in his admission being revoked? After Dumbledore, observant but fair-minded, attentive but undeterred by his inquiry, assures Mrs. Cole that she and her staff will no longer need to worry about Tom, at least during the school year, the matron opens up. He scares the other children. Chilling. Absolutely a terrifying line. You mean he is a bully? Asked Dumbledore. I think he must be, said Mrs. Cole, frowning slightly, but it's very hard to catch him at it. There have been incidents, nasty things. Now, of course, Mrs. Cole would not even have the language to describe what it is that Tom Riddle is or seems to be. She bully can't is, conceive of she it. She can't conceive of it. Bully is the best that she can do in this case. Mm-hmm. From the book again, Dumbledore did not press her, though Harry could tell that he, he was interested. And of course he's interested. How could he not be? This 11-year-old boy appears not only to be terrorizing his peers, but to have unsettled adults to the point of fear and mystified, undefined terror. Young Tom, it seems, is suspected of being involved in a myriad of troubling incidents. But proof is always lacking. A boy who argued with Tom found his pet rabbit hung from the rafters. Mrs. Cole says from the book, Tom said he didn't do it, and I don't see how he could have done, but even so, it didn't hang itself from the rafters, did it? I shouldn't think so, no, said Dumbledore quietly. Then there were the two children who, on a seaside day trip, accompanied Tom Riddle into a cave and were never quite the same. Mrs. Cole again, he swore they'd just gone exploring, but something happened in there, I'm sure of it. That cave, of course, will figure heavily in our story. The place clearly made an impression on Tom Riddle's dark imagination, perhaps even proved a theater for his discovery and exploration of some of his own powers. Horcruxes aren't portkeys, common objects to sit in common places, never drawing the eye. Their prized possessions hidden, in Voldemort's case, in areas of paramount importance. Perhaps there was something magical about that place that he was able to tap into. We don't know. We see here how early the cave, where he'll secret the locket amid an army of Inferi, and a potion that forces their drinker to experience crippling physical and emotional agony, took a hold of him. Mm-hmm. From the book again, I don't think many people will be sorry to see the back of him, Man. Mrs. Cole says. A clear, unambiguous warning sign that puts Dumbledore on his guard but does nothing to derail Tom's destiny for a place like Hogwarts. I suppose you'd like to see him, Mrs. Cole says to Dumbledore. Very much, he replies. At last, Mrs. Cole takes Dumbledore to meet Tom Riddle. Harry observes as they walk toward the room that the orphans look well cared for, but that, quote, there was no denying that this was a grim place in which to grow up. And Harry would certainly know all about that. Quote, Harry and the two Dumbledores entered the room and Mrs. Cole closed the door on them. Man, man. It was a small, bare room with nothing in it except an old wardrobe, a wooden chair, and an iron bedstead. A boy was sitting on top of the gray blankets, his legs stretched out in front of him, holding a book. We can't help but think of Harry in his cupboard Mm -hmm. when we read this. Dumbledore introduces himself. How do you do, Tom? Full body chills reading this line every single time, contrasting this moment with the duel between Dumbledore and Voldemort to come in the Ministry of Magic so many decades later. 
the years and lives and choices and horrors and lies that stand between this first Tom exchanged between them and the it was foolish to come here tonight, Tom, the Dumbledore will issue an order of the Phoenix. Dumbledore's insistent attempt to force Tom to recall the boy Dumbledore brought into the magical world, the boy he was, the man he could have been. Young Tom, confused but curious, takes in the scene for a moment and then reacts with worry, paranoia. Professor, Tom repeats after Dumbledore introduces himself. Quote, he looked wary. Is that like doctor? What are you here for? Did she get you in to have a look at me? No, no, said Dumbledore, smiling. I don't believe you, said Riddle. She wants me looked at, doesn't she? Tell the truth. Passage continues. He spoke the last three words with a ringing force that was almost shocking. It was a command, and it sounded as though he had given it many times before. We're seeing Mrs. Cole's report play out in real time, immediately, clearly. Young Tom Riddle is unafraid to seek to gain control, fearful of the effort that others will make to rob him of it, and thus determined to assert his dominance. That his fierce order has no seeming effect on Albus Dumbledore surprises Tom, Mm -hmm. who's clearly used not only to demanding his way, but to getting it when he engages this voice. And again, that doesn't mean his life is bliss. He's alone and unhappy. But in that unhappiness, the seeds of something foul are taking root. So Tom is intrigued by Dumbledore's resistance to this command that he issued. And that curiosity takes hold of him. So he asks who Dumbledore is. Dumbledore tells Tom that he's there to offer him a place at his school, Hogwarts. And Riddle explodes, accusing Dumbledore of trying to trick him into accompanying him to an asylum and saying hotly that he had nothing to do with the many menacing incidents of which Mrs. Cole and others have sought to lay at his door. Tom's reaction should elicit sympathy. Clearly he's scared. But there should also be concern here. What has he done that he believes so strongly would lead others to want to institutionalize him? I'd like to see them try, Tom says concerningly in reply to Dumbledore saying no one will force him to go to the school. Dumbledore pushes through this storm of invective. Hogwarts is not a school for mad people. It's a school of magic. And there was silence. Riddle had frozen, his face expressionless, but his eyes were flickering back and forth between each of Dumbledore's as though trying to catch one of them lying. Already he's trying to probe people's minds to see if what they're telling him is accurate. Long before Voldemort will become a master at Legilimens, he's already trying to do this. And it's interesting, you know, like one of the things that I find personally really terrifying is powerful children. This is like one of the things I really liked about Star Wars The Last Jedi. Mm -hmm. Because there's something truly scary about power without restraint that comes from age and experience. A kid who can lash out but actually really kill you with a word, with a thought command you to do things, do things to you that would change your life forever. I mean, that's terrifying to think about in that small package. And yet they say that a castle full of children like that yeah, is right. the safest place it's there the is. It's the safest place there is. <laughs> well. <laughs> Magic, Tom repeats, whispering. That's right, said Dumbledore. It's... It's magic, what I can do? Dumbledore asks him what exactly it is that he can do. This entire sequence is unbelievable. All sorts breathed riddle. A flush of excitement was rising up his neck into his hollow cheeks. Tom initially refused to believe that Dumbledore was really there from a school. That was beyond the bounds of acceptable information. Mm -hmm. But when he hears that magic is real, 
that he can do it. He doesn't push back once. He instantly accepts it. He's been waiting to hear this. And it transports him. Quote, I can make things move without touching them. I can make animals do what I want them to do without training them. I can make bad things happen to people who annoy me. I can make them hurt if I want to. This is absolutely terrifying. Hearing anyone talk this way would be. But to hear a child speak in these terms, frame his power in this way, is beyond unsettling. Riddle's legs tremble as the reveal washes over him, and he makes his way over to his bed, where he stares at his own hands, quote, his head bowed as though in prayer. And then we get one of the series' signature lines, truly one of my all-time favorite passages. Quote, I knew I was different, he whispered to his own quivering fingers. I knew I was special. Always, I knew there was something. This is spine-tingling stuff. Contrast this with Harry's response when Haggard issued the famous Harry, you're a wizard line, quote from Sorcerer's Stone. Harry, instead of feeling pleased and proud, felt quite sure there had been a horrible mistake. A wizard? Him? How could he possibly be? Harry struggles to accept that he's a wizard, that he's famous, that he conquered a great villain. But the boy who will become that villain? felt that he was hearing aloud at last a truth he'd on some level always known. And the effect this confirmation has on him is alarming. Quote, Well, you were quite right, said Dumbledore, who was no longer smiling, but watching Riddle intently. You are a wizard. Riddle lifted his head. His face was transfigured. There was a wild happiness upon it. Yet for some reason, it did not make him better looking. On the contrary... His finely carved features seemed somehow rougher, his expression almost bestial, foreshadowing here for his transformation into a creature of darkness. He asks Dumbledore if he's a wizard too, and when Dumbledore affirms this, he says, prove it. Again, commands, control. Dumbledore asserts some authority of his own. He says, if, as I take it, you are accepting your place at Hogwarts, of course I am then you will address me as professor or sir. And this feels like a moment in which Dumbledore is taking back some power. But as we'll see in our continued memory exploration throughout Prince, Tom isn't just good at magic. He's an expert manipulator already. And he has no problem playing the part of the meek student if it gets him, in the long run, the thing that he wants. Consider how he explodes Hepzibah Smith. One of Dumbledore's real advantages over Tom over the long course of their relationship is that Dumbledore isn't susceptible to this kind of social engineering. He's fallen victim to someone's pretty talk and promises before, mm-hmm. and it was a massive wound for him, yes. and he's learned from it. Now, in Tom's case, he sees through the bullshit. Tom puts on, quote, an unrecognizably polite voice and says, please, Professor, could you show me? Harry's sure Dumbledore will refuse, but he pulls his wand flicks it and lights Tom's wardrobe on fire. Greedily, Riddle looks at Dumbledore's wand and asks, where can I get one of those? Mm -hmm. Dumbledore notes that something is amiss in the wardrobe. Clearly, his spell revealed this transgression. And from the book, for the first time, Riddle looked frightened. There's a box. You can hear something shaking in there. And Dumbledore demands that he open up the wardrobe and remove it and tell him if there's anything in there he shouldn't have. From the book, Riddle threw Dumbledore a long, clear, calculating look. Yes, I suppose so, sir, he said finally in an expressionless voice. 
already so calculating. Yes. You know, formulating the odds. What does it benefit me to do this now? Okay, I will. The reveal when he empties the box underwhelms Harry, but it will prove significant. A yo-yo, a silver thimble, and a harmonica, all of which quiet once they're out of the box. Dumbledore instructs him to return these stolen goods to their rightful owners and tells him he'll know if Tom doesn't do it and warns him that thieving is not tolerated at Hogwarts. From the book, Riddle did not look remotely abashed. Dumbledore tells him that he's not the first or the last to, quote, allow your magic to run away with you. Mm. He's making allowances for the trappings of youth and ignorance. Is it fair, after all, to expect someone to control what they don't know about or understand? But of course, there's the rub, because Riddle was already controlling it, as Dumbledore and Harry will soon discuss. All new wizards, Dumbledore tells Tom, must accept that in entering our world, they abide by our laws. We have to wonder how many 11-year-olds have ever gotten a speech like this, warned in the same moments that they learn the truth of their identity, about possible expulsion and arrest. Tom tells Dumbledore he has no money, and when Dumbledore gives him some from the school's assistance fund and tells him about Diagon Alley, he offers to accompany him. Tom takes the money without saying thank you, and then says, I don't need you. I'm used to doing things for myself. For Harry, finding out about the magical world was disorienting and unnerving, yes, but also an instant source of joy because of the prospect of finding friends and family, discovering at last a community to which he really, truly belongs. Tom Riddle wants none of that. He doesn't want to be a part of something. He wants to stand alone, separate, above them all. When Dumbledore tells him that he can find Diagon Alley through the Leaky Cauldron, where he should ask for the barman, Tom, Dumbledore notes, it should be easy for the boy to remember that name, since they share it. Quote, Riddle gave an irritable twitch, as though trying to displace an irksome fly. You dislike the name Tom? Dumbledore asks him. There are a lot of Toms, muttered Riddle. Here already he's showing his aversion, as Dumbledore will soon explain to Harry, to being lumped into the masses— an impulse that will grow until it utterly consumes him, leading him to pursue immortality, refusing to succumb to the most fundamental of human commonalities, that we all die. Right on cue, he asked Dumbledore if his father was a wizard, professing his belief that his mother couldn't be because she hadn't lived. As Dumbledore makes his leave, shaking Tom's hand, The boy speaks again. He can't resist gushing about how good he is already, the things he's always known about himself that made him unique. I can speak to snakes. I found out when we've been to the country on trips, they find me, they whisper to me. Is that normal for a wizard? It is not, as we know from (laughs) Harry's own parcel mouth, ostracization in chamber. And Harry can sense that Riddle knows it as well, that he was waiting purposefully to say this in the final moments of their meeting for it to have its greatest effect. It is unusual, said Dumbledore, after a moment's hesitation, but not unheard of. We can tell from the next description that Dumbledore was concerned. The warning signs, the portents here are undeniable. And yet, this is a boy. And as a boy who himself was tempted by the thirst for power, by the pull of the dark, it's ingrained in him not to want to rush to judgment. That's fair. That's wise. Why should he not have second chances, as he'll go on to do with Snape? From the book again. His tone was casual, but his eyes moved curiously over Riddle's face. They stood for a moment, man and boy staring at each other. Everything stems from this moment. Goodbye, Tom. I shall see you at Hogwarts. And for the rest of his life, and even in the grave. 
Dumbledore pulls Harry out of the memory back into his office. And Harry shares the same thought that Reader surely had. Riddle took to the news so much faster than Harry had. Mm -hmm. It almost feels like Harry is grasping onto this detail. Because unlike so many other discoveries that have highlighted the similarities, the parallels between Harry and Voldemort, this is a difference. Quote, did you know then? Asked Harry. Did I know that I had just met the most dangerous dark wizard of all time? Said Dumbledore. No, I had no idea that he was to grow up to be what he is. However, I was certainly intrigued by him. Consider again Dumbledore's past with Grindelwald. He has twice encountered dark wizards in their youth. Mm -hmm. Twice that we know of. Knowing Grindelwald should have primed Dumbledore for being on his guard with Tom Riddle. And in many ways it did. But as just discussed, the irony is that Dumbledore's own culpability and weakness, his temptation for power, made him more willing to be patient, to try to see the good. He tells Harry here that he did feel that he had to keep an eye on Tom, both because Tom was alone, but also, quote, for others' sake as much as his. He could see right away that Tom Riddle's powers were unusually developed for a wizard so young, and that, even more uncommonly, he had, quote, some measure of control over them and begun to use them consciously. This wasn't ending up on the roof of the school to escape a fight or shrinking an ugly sweater or regrowing his hair. Quote, he was already using magic against other people to frighten, to punish, to control. And then Harry brings up the snakes. But Dumbledore goes, hashtag not all parcel mouths on us here, noting that Harry is good. Mm -hmm. Quote, his ability to speak to serpents did not make me nearly as uneasy as his obvious instincts for cruelty, secrecy, and domination. Dumbledore says it's time to wrap things up, but first, he wants Harry to concentrate on a few key details from the memories. Quote, for they have a great bearing on matters we shall be discussing in future meetings. Mm-hmm. So now it's really happening, right? Dumbledore is letting Harry yes. further in to what he suspects about Voldemort than he ever has before. First, he notes how Riddle responded to the observation that other people share his name, Tom. Another person, in fact, from the book. There he showed his contempt for anything that tied him to other people, anything that made him ordinary. Even then, he wished to be different, separate, notorious. Second, he notes that Riddle was already self-sufficient, secret, and friendless, preferring to operate alone. Quote, the adult Voldemort is the same. You will hear many of his Death Eaters claiming that they are in his confidence, that they alone are close to him, even understand him. They are deluded. Lord Voldemort has never had a friend, nor do I believe that he has ever wanted one. That line floors me every time. I think there's something here in this line. They are deluded. Yeah. Lord Voldemort has never had a friend, nor do I believe that he has ever wanted one. That simultaneously highlights... What makes him so dangerous, Mm -hmm. which is that he is, you know, he has this army, this army of supporters, of minions, people to do his bidding. And as we hear throughout the story, many of them are almost as dangerous Mm -hmm. as he is. But he doesn't care about them at all. They're just living versions of the inferior for him, right? And the fact that that is what makes him most dangerous, but is also his greatest weakness, that he doesn't understand love or friendship, is just so Even in his childhood, he cared— only about power, and even then, when he wanted to experience it, before he knew anything about magic, knew he was magical, what would he do? He'd go to a cave, a place where he could be completely alone to toy with people, not really understanding what he could do. 
But that's how he experienced power as a thing to hold alone by himself. And the mistake his followers make, specifically Bellatrix in particular, is they think that they can impress him in human ways. They can get to him emotionally. If I just do this, he'll be impressed with what I do and I can get closer to him. No, 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 no. They're just tools. That doesn't mean anything to him. Not at all. Chilling stuff. This is also remarkable to weigh this confirmation that the habits that made Voldemort so vicious and lethal were ingrained in him so young against our desire, Harry's desire, Dumbledore's desire to believe that people are moldable and can change. The key, again, is that Tom Riddle never wanted to change. Yes. Voldemort had a high opinion of himself, and the worst thing that could have happened was for that to be proven true. Right. It was absolutely the worst thing that could have happened. Maybe if he was a normal boy, he'd be a bully, a bad guy, a petty person, but there'd be a chance that he could change. Not this way. To give him basically unlimited power, the access, the path to achieve unlimited power, there was no way he was ever going to be good. Ever, 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 once he found out that he was magic. But that's the thing, is because Dumbledore's the same. Yeah. That gifted, that good, also had that confirmed when he was so young, was granted these opportunities, came face-to-face with another boy just as talented, Mm -hmm. just as precocious. And the difference, of course, is that he cared about people. Right. He cared about Grindelwald and he cared about his family. And when those things were ripped away from him, it set him on the course to goodness and to self-reflection and to committing himself fully, even though he struggled with this throughout his entire Mm -hmm. life, to trying desperately to do right, to make the right choice. And Voldemort didn't want to make the right choice. It's interesting because, like, how does every despotism start? It's because somebody is like, I want to make the world better. That's within my power to do that, to change the world. That was Dumbledore's mistake, is getting seduced by that idea that, oh, we're for the greater good, we're going to make things better. This is going to be better. The world's going to be better after we do this. Right. Voldemort can say that, right? He can say, you know, like education only for the pure bloods and this and that and this and that. That's a tool for him. What he wants is power and to ruminate on that power completely alone by himself apart from everyone. Right. He doesn't want to build a world there's, for other people. Yes, he wants there's to no, build a world that for confirms himself. his excellence. There's no better world there, right? So that is the difference between the two. Mm-hmm. Third, Dumbledore notes, quote, the young Tom Riddle liked to collect trophies, the yo-yo, the thimble, the mouth yes. organ, symbols of his conquests, of his superiority. Again, from the book, bear in mind this magpie-like tendency for this particularly will be important later. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. <laughs> he doesn't tell Harry, of course, why here Naturally. now, of course. <laughs> but this primes us and Harry alike for the hunt for the horcruxes and the reveal of those that are coming. The unrivaled hubris of using his most horrifying magic, his most vicious murders to safeguard himself, pieces of himself, in hallowed objects, physical and magical manifestations of his own brilliance and triumph. As Harry moves to leave, he looks at the table where he saw the ring when he entered the office. The ring's gone, but I thought you might have the mouth organ or something. I love this. And Dumbledore beams. Very astute, Harry. But the mouth organ was only ever a mouth organ. Bam, bam, bam. Meaning, of course, that the ring was and is something more. But, of course, this remark goes unexplained. For now! Such a good chapter. Really an incredible chapter. Ah! Chapter 14, Felix Felicis. Mm. In Herbology, Harry shares what he learned in the pensive with Ron and Hermione. And Ron finds it, you know, interesting-ish. 
but he's perplexed. <laughs> what a take from Ron Weasley right here. <laughs> perplexed as to the usefulness of it all. It's a great take. Sweet one-one. Hermione, of course, sees the value in learning as much about the enemy as possible. Quote, how else will you find out his weaknesses? Exactly, Hermione. Harry asks about Slughorn's latest shindig. How was it? Slughorn, since his first introduction as a comfortable armchair. Wonderful. And his first potions lesson has sort of been lurking gregariously around the periphery of the story. However, the various strands of Prince's story, Voldemort's evolution and vulnerabilities, Draco's plot, Dumbledore's fate, the prince's identity, are woven together in ways that Harry can't anticipate. Slughorn's misstep years ago, giving Tom Riddle information on Horcruxes, then covering it up in his shame, looms just over the horizon. JK, by having Harry ask about the Slug Club here, is priming us again for the continued importance of the Harry Slughorn yes. courtship, which will swing in time from Slughorn trying to woo Harry to Harry trying to sway yeah. Slug, eventually leading to the ultimate Felix-aided reveal. Hermione mentions that Slughorn's having a Slug Club Christmas party. Ooh. Of course, Ron reacts to any mention of the Slug Club with pointed annoyance. And when Hermione says the name Slug Club aloud, Ron responds, quote, with a sneer worthy of Malfoy, Slug Club? It's pathetic. Well, I hope you enjoy your party. Why don't you try hooking up with McGlagan? Then Slughorn can make you king and queen slug. Ron has no illusions about how remarkable his two closest friends are, but the Slug Club has made that divide tangible. It's exacerbated Ron's already very present feelings of inadequacy, of being overshadowed by first his siblings, always his siblings, and now his friends. Part of what makes Harry and Hermione such good pals is that they're so empathetic. They understand this insecurity of Ron's deeply. Harry has been purposely scheduling Quidditch practice opposite Slug Club events so that Ron doesn't feel as left out. Hermione, as is starting to become increasingly clear, is motivated not only by a desire to protect Ron's feelings, but by developing feelings of her own. Quote, this whole stretch is it's painful. fucking mesmerizing. <laughs> I know. We're allowed to bring guests at Hermione who for some reason had turned a bright boiling scarlet. I wonder why. And I was going to ask you to come, but if you think it's that stupid, then I won't bother. Harry is very embarrassed as this is playing out and starts busying himself with their herbology task as the exchange continues. This is actually very touching, this next part. You were going to ask me? Asked Ron in a completely different voice. Yes, said Hermione angrily, but obviously if you'd rather I hooked up with McGlagan. Damn! Here's the next part. There was a pause while Harry continued to pound the resilient pod with a trowel. <laughs> no, I wouldn't, said Ron in a very quiet voice. This is wonderful stuff, full of portents of a different kind. Ron and Hermione's evolving feelings for each other. And the clumsy, grasping, bass-ackwards way they go about expressing it to each other and even just thinking about it themselves. Yeah. Harry processing this exchange grows worried. He's not surprised. He's seen this coming for some time, but his brief dalliance with Cho has now resulted in him and Cho never speaking. They're too embarrassed to even interact. Quote, what if Ron and Hermione started going out together, then split up? Could their friendship survive it? And what if Conversely, they don't split up? That's right. What if it works? What if it lasts? What if it's too excruciating to even be in their presence because they're so in love, like it is with Bill and Floor? This last thought of Harry's <laughs> has some of the markings of youth and immaturity, of course, but there's also something very human at play. We just explored how Ron so often is the one who feels left out. Contemplating his two best friends pairing up together makes Harry feel left out. A third wheel in a friend group that to this point 
has in essence entirely revolved around him. Unfortunately for Harry, he's about to have some clumsy romantic entanglements of his own pop up. Oh, yeah. (laughs) With Katie Bell out of commission, Harry needs a new chaser from the book. With a sinking feeling that had little to do with Quidditch, he taps Dean Thomas. (laughs) Cheers, Harry. Blimey, I can't wait to tell Ginny. There have been various signs regarding Harry's awakening feelings towards Ginny seeded throughout Prince, and even some in order. Lights flashing red deep inside Harry's heart. So DP isn't truly aware of how he feels. But that's all about to change, baby. (laughs) Harry and Ron are returning to Gryffindor Tower after a rocky practice in which Ron, flailing under the pressure, punches Demelza in the face. Extremely tough stretch for Ron Weasley. When they stumble upon Ginny and Dean, quote, locked in a close embrace and kissing fiercely, fiercely, as they're glued together. Go get it, girl. (laughs) Harry feels a beast stir in his chamber of secrets. From the book again, (laughs) something large and scaly erupted into life in Harry's stomach. (laughs) Clawing at his insides. Hot blood seemed to flood his brain so that all all thought was extinguished, replaced by a savage urge to jinx Dean into jelly. (laughs) Harry, luckily for him, is spared the need to instantly process this and bring himself to speech because Ron takes it upon himself to defend Weasley family honor and effectively (laughs) slut-shame his sister for having... A robust and lively love life. This is an awful look. This is an for awful our guy, Ron Weasley. An awful turn for <laughs> Ronald Weasley. When Ginny turns furious to Ron and says, quite fairly, that yeah. it's none of his fucking business whom she dates, <laughs> he says, Yeah, it is. Do you think I'm I want people saying my sister's a a what? shouted Ginny, drawing her wand. A what exactly? Oh, man. Now, to be fair, Ron. Yes. To be slightly fair to Ron, <laughs> he's processing a lot of emotions of his own right now. Yes. About Hermione, about his own inadequacy, and seeing his sister acting in this manner uh-huh. makes him feel ashamed of his own lack of experience and undeniably jealous that yes. his siblings and his friends are experiencing romance and he has, <laughs> has definitely has not. Dramatically not. <laughs> This is also highly despicable. Yes. From Ron. Don't worry, though. White knights out there. Ginny can handle her biz. Oh, yeah. And she deals Ron a rhetorical ass beating. (laughs) So brutal. (laughs) And so deserved. Yes. That the only rational response is sheer awe. Awe. When Harry tries to intercede, (laughs) Ginny fucking tees off. Just because he's never snogged anyone in his life. Just because the best kiss he's ever had is from our Auntie Muriel. Shut your mouth, the bellowed Ron, bypassing red and turning maroon. (laughs) But she will not. Ginny has much, much more to say. Oh, yes. She continues. I've seen you with Flem, hoping she'll kiss you on the cheek every time you see her. It's pathetic. If you went out and got a bit of snogging done yourself, you wouldn't mind so much that everyone else does it. Ginny already has her wand out, recall. At these words, Ron pulls his too. At least he gets to pull it here in this circumstance. (laughs) Ron, you know, this is basically the only circumstances in which Ron will ever get to pull his wand 
with I think other he's, people I think he's present. Probably been pulling his own no, watch with plenty. people present. <laughs> Harry stands in front of Ginny, arms outstretched as Ron preposterously <laughs> implies that actually. Wait, hold on a second. I have been snogging. I have uh, uh, been snogging in private so that literally no one knows about it. Ginevra says, quote, been kissing Pickwidgeon, have you? <laughs> or have you got a picture of Auntie Muriel stashed under your pillow? Call the fight, people. Throw in the towel. It's over. That's enough. Ron is finished. But wait. Please Avada Kedavra him because <laughs> he's dead inside anyway. Ginny is about to deal the fatal yeah. blow. After Harry pins Ron against a wall following Ron's attempt to jinx Ginny, Ginny says, Harry snog Cho Chang. And she's described as shouting and close to tears. Here it comes. And Hermione snogged Victor Crump. It's only you who acts like it's something disgusting, Ron, and that's because you've got about as much experience as a 12-year-old. Savage stuff. Ron is already struggling with feeling less wanted than his friends. He's already working to come to terms with his feelings toward Hermione. Hearing that she kissed the wizarding world's LeBron James. Very tough. The man <laughs> whose action figure you sought out. And kept by your bedside. <laughs> who carries the binge mode moniker Vic the Dick. Vic the Dick. <laughs> this is basically the only thing that could have made Ron feel worse than he already did. Less adequate, less confident, less worthy. Harry, we should note, is not feeling great either. He tries to tell himself that he's only feeling this way toward Ginny because it's Ron's sister. It's protective. Yes. And then immediately he allows himself to indulge in a vision of himself behind that tapestry with Ginny. Quote, the monster in his chest purred. And then he finds himself thinking about Ron's reaction, imagining comments like betrayal of trust and supposed to be my friend. Ron and Harry are both totally lost in thought as they're making their way back to the common room. And then Ron breaks the silence. Do you think Hermione did snog crumb? <laughs> Ron, the answer is yes. What are you talking about? Ron, she, she talked about Ron, it a lot. the answer is yes. He's a physical being. <laughs> <laughs> she talked about it quite a bit. He was writing her. Like, what are you talking about? Victor. With the big Quidditch match against Slytherin approaching and everything else going on, Ron's crumbling confidence simply has to be addressed. Mm-hmm. Harry tries pumping up his friend, but Ron's turbulent feelings toward Hermione, the mounting pressure of the living match, and Ginny's vicious dunk fest... <laughs> Make it essentially impossible. Ron's treating Hermione coldly, and she doesn't know why. He's saving fewer goals than ever at practice, and he's abusing his teammates. Harry has to do something. Losing by a billion goals to Slytherin is simply not an option. The night before match day, the light bulb goes off. At breakfast, before the match, Harry puts his plan into action. Tea? Which is suspicious already. (laughs) Right? Tea? Harry asks him. Coffee? Pumpkin juice? Anything, said Ron glumly, taking a moody bite of toast. Just as Hermione arrives, Harry passes over a beverage. There you go, Ron. Drink up. Ron had just raised the glass to his lips when Hermione spoke sharply. Don't drink that, Ron! And Hermione accuses Harry of spiking Ron's juice. With that vial of liquid luck he won from Sluggy. But of course, Harry did no such thing. He only wants Ron to think Mm -hmm. that's what happened. He knows Ron's issue is confidence, not ability. He just needs Ron to believe, and holding the actual vial in his hand helps sell it a bit and further enrage Hermione, who's not in on it, but whose natural inclination to scold cheaters, despite her own unfortunate confunding history, (laughs) is necessary to sell the bit. 
This all turns out okay in the long run, but tensions are running so high with the trio right now that Harry actually risks a lot here. Mm-hmm. Ron tells Hermione to stop bossing him around, and Hermione tells Harry that he should be expelled, which for Hermione is about the worst thing that she can say to a person. I mean, remember, famously, yeah, like, she at one point considered expulsion worse than death by three-headed dog. <laughs> I mean, this is bad. <laughs> Yikes. Not that we needed it, but here's one more warning about what Harry's willing to deprioritize because of Quidditch. From the book, Hermione had never really understood what a serious business Quidditch was. Harry's ruse is aided by the weather. Perfect flying conditions. Quote, pretty lucky the weather's this good, eh? (laughs) Harry asks, priming his friend. And he's further helped along by a few notable changes to the Slytherin team sheet, which Ginny brings to their attention, telling them that... One of Slytherin's chasers is out with a head injury. They seem a little too jovial about the head injury part. And, quote, (laughs) even better than that, Malfoy's gone off sick, too. Malfoy's not playing? Okay, that's not right. What's he up to? Harry naturally worries over this. Yet another troubling sign about Malfoy's shifting priorities. Quote, Malfoy had once before claimed he could not play due to injury, but on that occasion, he had made sure the whole match was rescheduled for a time that suited the Slytherins better. Why was he now happy to let a substitute go on? Was he really ill? Or was he faking it? Reasonable questions. This turn of events, concerning though they may be, cements the con job for Ron. I, you. (laughs) Ron had dropped his voice. He looked both scared and excited. My drink, my pumpkin juice, you didn't. Well, no, Harry didn't actually. We've chided him at various points for placing Quidditch above things like keeping the Dark Lord out of my mind on the priorities list. He was off the team by then. It was fine. (laughs) Luckily... Harry understands that his tiny bottle of Felix Felicis is way yes. too valuable to actually waste on a midseason Quidditch match. He just needs Ron to think it. And hey, listen, not hard to sell Ron here. And mission accomplished, guys. Gryffindor wins. Yes. Ron makes numerous truly spectacular saves. Ginny scores a billion goals. Ron even pretends to conduct a chorus of Weasley is our king. Harry almost gets beat to the snitch because he's distracted. Notable here. But... He gets there first in the end, as is his wont. This time using a little Slytherin strategy, playing dirty. A little trash talk here. He says, Oi, Harper, how much did Malfoy pay you to come on instead of him? And Harry's obsession with Malfoy is paid off. In changing rooms, Hermione comes to accost Harry and Ron about their treachery from the book. That's why everything went right. There were Slytherin players missing and Ron saved everything. And now Harry must reveal his master plan or else... It will cement in Ron's mind that he only did this because of the Felix Felicis. He tells him it was all a ruse. Ah, but does this smooth things over? Not quite. Ron's still salty about Crumb, though he doesn't have the maturity to say so, or maybe even know that he should say so, is pissed at Hermione. He says, see, I can save goals without help, Hermione. Harry's dismayed. He thought that winning the match would soothe all their ills, which is classic Harry. Back in the common room, Harry's looking for Ron. Ginny directs him. He's over there, the filthy hypocrite. Harry looks and a shocking sight. In plain view of everyone, Ron is popping his snog cherry. (laughs) From the book, wrapped so closely around Lavender Brown, it was hard to tell whose hands were whose. Ginny brings the fire as always. It looks like he's eating her face, doesn't it? (laughs) But I suppose he's got to refine his technique somehow. I just love that Ginny... Is like uh, she's well, an icon. Obviously, has no idea what he's doing, but it'll get better. <laughs> Iconic stuff. As Harry turns, he sees a bushy mane leaving the common room and knows his heart sinking that Hermione has seen Ron too. Harry follows her and finds Hermione in an empty classroom. An assortment of 
birds that she's conjured above her. They recently learned this magic in class. Quote, Ron seems to be enjoying the celebrations, Hermione says. Er, does he? Said Harry. Don't pretend you didn't see him, said Hermione. He wasn't exactly hiding it. Was. And just as she's speaking, Ron and Lavender pop into the room, clearly looking for a spot to fuck. Quote, there was a horrible, swelling, billowing silence. Woo! What will Ron's inability to process his feelings, to maturely grapple with this development in his life, cost? Hermione is staring at Ron, but he refuses to even look at her. Talking instead to Harry, Hermione speaks. You shouldn't leave Lavender waiting outside, she said quietly. She'll wonder where you've gone. <laughs> that crushes me. Crushes me. He is, of course, leaving Hermione waiting in a much bigger sense here. And then as she walks toward the door, she sends all of the birds at Ron, quote, her expression, wild. They attack him, quote, pecking and clawing at every bit of flesh they could reach. And as Ron begs for relief, Hermione leaves, quote, Harry thought he heard a sob before it slammed. This is very tough. And again, this is one of those moments where we can't all relate to having magical powers and trying to conquer a dark lord, but all of us know what that feels like. This is Harry's greatest fear happening, right? here. This is heart-wrenching stuff, not only because it hurts to see Hermione in pain and to see Ron acting so callously toward her, but because as the world crumbles around them, we have always been able to hold on to the fact, to trust the fact that these three friends— would be there for each other. Yes, they faced moments of torment. Ron and Hermione had their famous towering row in Azkaban. Harry and Ron had their separation in Goblet. They've had various other bickering sessions and spats. But nothing like this. This feels different. This feels seismic. Chapter 15, The Unbreakable Vow. The Ron-Hermione drama bleeds over into the holiday season. This is a bummer for Harry. Ron's confidence coming off his strong Quidditch performance and what we have to imagine are Multiple fuck sessions with Lavender Brown, right? So this is one of the first Benjamin and Harry Potter debates that we had. Yes. The four of us. Yeah. Two of us with Isaac and Cram. And in <laughs> essence, the three of you stated it like fact. And I was shocked. It had never occurred to me that Ron and Lavender had slept together. And I spent a, a lot of time thinking about fictional characters fucking. It had never occurred to me. Mostly just because Ron seems so inexperienced. Yeah. Like, hand jobs, yes. Blow jobs, of course. I'm sure Ron was never returning the favor. I just feel like Ron, the way he's acting now, is too confident for just mere handies. Maybe so. He just is so, like, I mean, well, you know, <laughs> that's Hermione's problem, isn't it? <laughs> he's just, all of a sudden has gone from, like, hanging on her every word and deed to like, well, Hermione's just going to have to get in line, isn't she? <laughs> well, listen, if his initial snogging form was any indication, then I'm very glad for Hermione's sake that he got a few reps in first. What are the odds that Ron like did something else but thinks that that is sex? And it's like, no, I'm not a virgin. What are you talking about? Are you? Interesting. You know? He's like Arthur of the sexual I realm. feel like growing up with Fred and George, you probably know all the details. Yeah, that's probably true. <laughs> <laughs> to say nothing of Bill. <laughs> I mean, just hang out outside Bill and Fleur's door during the summer break. Oh, God. Find out everything you need to know, guys. Everything. <laughs> everything. But all the Fleur's talk of long braids and... Yeah. Fangs. Ron probably thought that was about his hair and his earrings, but it wasn't. He's just like writing stuff down. 
Anyway, Ron is just flat out arrogant right now. He says, I never promised Hermione anything. I mean, all right, I was going to Slughorn's party with her. If she was going to beg me. No, he doesn't say it. But she never said, just as friends, I'm a free agent. Wow. This is some wild shit. Harry thinks he hears Ron muttering words like crumb and can't complain. (laughs) Plus, much to Harry's chagrin, Lav Lav is just always around. And she does suck. Horrible. She's terrible. (laughs) Among the toughest of eggs. Very tough. Seeming to, quote, regard any moment that she was not kissing Ron as a moment wasted. Yeah, they fucked. (laughs) They got it in. Harry takes to joining Hermione, who refuses to bear witness to this unholy union. In the common room at night and in the library, she's deflecting, saying Ron can kiss whoever he likes. I really couldn't care less, she says, then puncturing her parchment with her quill in fury. Hermione warns Harry about some potential looming romantic complications of his own. You need to be careful, she says, telling him that she overheard a dozen girls Only in the a bathroom. dozen. <laughs> including Ramil Devane, trying to figure out how to slip him a love potion. They want his invite to Slughorn's party. And they don't need to worry about brewing a potion of their own. (laughs) Hermione says, they all seem to have bought Fred and George's love potions, which I'm afraid to say probably were. Very very good wizards. Gifted. She advises Harry to just invite someone to the party already so all the other suitors stop hunting his invite. And he says, there isn't anyone I want to invite. Quote, Still trying not to think about Ginny any more than he could help, despite the fact that she kept cropping up in his dreams in ways that made him <laughs> devoutly thankful Hello. that Ron could not perform legitimacy. Hello! Wow! <laughs> Hello! After Hermione issues one more warning about <laughs> Romilda in particular, and rightly so because we will see later this chapter that Romilda yes. tries to smuggle him the potion, and does succeed, Ron will ingest it later with dire consequences. (laughs) Harry's mind shifts to the only thing that he thinks about these days more than Ginny and Quidditch, Draco Malfoy. Hang on a moment, he said slowly. I thought Filch had banned anything bought at Weasley's Wizard Wheezes. Aren't the owls being searched, he asks. Hermione tells him that the twins send their potions disguised as perfume and cough syrup. It's part of their owl order service. Harry is eager to move to the real point. Filch is being fooled. Yes. And if he's being fooled by this love potion, he could be being fooled by something Malfoy's trying to smuggle into the school. Hermione hand waves his return to obsessing over Malfoy and the necklace, but Harry is onto something. Again, the yes. castle's defenses aren't as impregnable as everybody seems to think. Yes. Braun voice. I'll impregnate the bitch. I'll, I'll impregnate the <laughs> Maybe no, don't have a squib in charge of, like, security <laughs> on the grounds. I'm just saying, like, can we get somebody who can do some stuff? Just because the love potions currently being smuggled in aren't being used to kill people, though, of course, remember what Slughorn said about how dangerous mm-hmm. they are. It's a concerning sign that something more nefarious than love potions even could be getting by Filch. Yep. Their library session is interrupted when Madame Pince spies. Harry's heavily marked up copy of advanced potion making and freaks out. Despoiled, desecrated, befouled. As they flee, they launch a new ship arguing over whether Filch and Madame Pince are doing the deed. Answer, definitely. What else could the manacles be for, which is fucking just (laughs) very disturbing. When they reach the common room, Romilda offers Harry a drink. Bing, 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 bing. (laughs) Danger. He says no, but she gives him chocolates, which we'll see soon. 
have love potion inside. She is committed to this. Rod and Hermione are also committed to hating each other right now, mocking each other during their first lessons in human transfiguration. When Harry pursues Hermione to try and cheer her up, he runs into Luna, who tells him that Hermione is very upset about Ron. Always a straight shooter, Luna. He says very funny things sometimes, doesn't he? said Luna as they set off down the corridor together. But he can be a bit unkind. I noticed that last year. Once again, so good. Luna displays her innate, unrivaled ability to identify and convey the truth, no matter how unpleasant it is to hear. She goes right to the heart of things. Mm-hmm. They begin to chat, catching each other up on their respective terms. Luna says she's been lonely without the DA. Heartbreaking stuff. Ginny's been nice, though. She stopped two boys in our transfiguration class calling me Looney the other day, which is really heartwarming. Ginny, remember, used to call Luna this. The bond these people shared has really changed them. These are two people that fought together at the ministry. As soon as Luna finished her comment about Ginny, Harry, quote, heard himself say as though it were a stranger speaking, how would you like to come to Slughorn's party with me tonight? He makes it clear, though, he means, quote, justice friends, (laughs) which the road not taken here. I know. It's very tough. (laughs) I know. Luna is delighted. Oh, no, I'd love to go with you as friends. Nobody's ever asked me to a party before as a friend. Is that why you dyed your eyebrow for the party? (laughs) Should I do mine? (laughs) Luna is truly wonderful. She's incredible. In no time, of course, the whole school knows that Harry Potter's taking Luna Lovegood to the Christmas party. Thanks in no small part to Peeves' song. Oh, Peeves. Fucking Peeves. Ron is baffled by Harry's choice, which... Look, I don't even want to hear it from this guy. Says I, a lot about both Ron yeah, and Harry. I do not in a bad want, way for Ron and a good way for Harry. I do not want to hear it from this guy. Ron's inability to appreciate Luna's. It's unbelievable. He thinks she's a laugh, but like. It's really sad. Yeah. Tough chapters for Ron here. <laughs> Extremely. Ginny, though, praises Harry, sharing how excited Luna is. And it's wonderful to think of Harry bringing joy to Luna's day in this fashion. Mm-hmm. But the pleasant feelings don't last long. With Ron, Lavender, and Harry all present, Hermione and Parvati engage in a loud, falsely cheerful chat about the party, with Parvati lamenting her lack of an invite and then asking Hermione about her status. Hermione says, Yes, I'm meeting Cormac at eight. The passage continues, quote, There was a noise like a plunger being withdrawn from a blocked (laughs) sink, and Ron surfaced. Looks like Hermione took Wanwan's advice after all. She's hooking up with McGlagan. Just, we will learn, despite Ron. She goes out of her way in the course of this conversation to note, Cormac almost won the keeper job. Mm -hmm. Are you going out with him then? Asked Parvati wide-eyed. This is iconic. Oh, yes. Didn't you know? Said Hermione with the most un-Hermione-ish giggle. No, said Parvati, looking positively agog at this piece of gossip. Here we go. Wow, you like your Quidditch players, don't you? First Crumb, then McGlagan. Here it is. I like really good Quidditch that players. That is savage <laughs> shit. Hermione corrected her, still smiling. I love this line. This is an all-time dunk. This is like... From walk, Hermione Granger. This is like walk away because you just got destroyed. Just a, a shiv to Ron's <laughs> ego. My God. As Lavender and Parvati gossip, Ron, quote, looked strangely blank. <laughs> We love Ron. Love Ron, but... Tough stretch for Ron. Very tough Tough stretch. stretch for our guy. Yeah. It's party time. Harry meets Luna, who's wearing spangled robes that are drawing laughs. Quote, but otherwise look quite nice. They set out for Slug's office. Slug's office is huge, all decked out, full of many non-Hogwarts guests. Harry and Luna spot Hermione, who's literally fleeing from Cormac. 
Serves you right for coming with him, Harry tells her. I thought he'd annoy Ron most, Hermione confesses before noting. McGlagan makes Grop look like a gentleman. Yikes. They all scoop goblets of mead because the children are just scooping goblets of mead at the party. The school party. Normal. As they cross the room and run into Professor Trelawney, Harry can again smell cooking sherry on her. She's very sad. She shit talks Ferenz, whom she refers to as... Dobbin and the horse. <laughs> Pretty despicable shit from oh my God. Trelawney, who's in her cups, but still. Everyone here is just woof. Bad look after bad look. Harry asks Hermione if she's going to tell Ron that she swung the Keeper tryouts. Amazingly, with everything going on, he's still worried about team <laughs> chemistry. Listen, Hermione, I know there's a lot going on, but I wanted to ask you, <laughs> because the team is playing really well right now. <laughs> <laughs> Slug ambles over just as Trelawney is lamenting Harry's absence from divination that year and begins to praise Harry's potion's genius mm-hmm. and then to Harry's horror. Slughorn pulls over Snape. Quote, I was just talking about Harry's exceptional potion making. Some credit must go to you, of course. You yeah. taught him for five years. And Snape is literally like, I never got the impression I taught <laughs> I him anything it's at all. like, what? Obviously, more like all the credit should go to Snape, as we will learn in time, since <laughs> yes. the Half-Blood Prince's instructions, which are making Harry such a potions pioneer, are really Snape's. And Snape is unsurprisingly, instantly suspicious of what he's hearing here, to the point where Harry is like, shit. This is something to be worried about. This is a warning sign. Quote, the last thing he wanted was for Snape to start investigating the source of his newfound brilliance. Mm -hmm. That potion. Dun, dun, dun. Well, you probably shouldn't use Sectumsempra then and then have Snape be the one who comes find you over Malfoy's bloodied near corpse. (laughs) Just as Harry's laughing at Luna's comment about horrors, the rot fang conspiracy, ministry takedowns, gum disease, you know, all that stuff. Harry sees Filch dragging Malfoy over by the ear. Apparently, Draco was attempting to gate-crash the party. Slug tells Malfoy he can stay, but as Harry observes the assemblage, he sees warning signs everywhere. From the book, why, Harry wondered, watching him, did Malfoy look almost equally unhappy? And why was Snape looking at Malfoy as though both angry and, was it possible, a little afraid? Harry observes Malfoy more carefully, and it's the first time he's seen him up close for ages. And this is actually quite alarming. He notes that Malfoy looks terrible dark shadows under his eyes grayish tinge to his skin the stress of draco's task is telling all over his face yes just as harry's taking in this concerning physical change in appearance snape tells draco he wants a word harry scoots out of the party puts on his invisibility cloak which he carries everywhere now it's fantastic great idea by dumbledore and chases after them and finally finds them in the last classroom in the hall He overhears Snape cautioning Malfoy about avoiding mistakes and not risking expulsion. And Draco, in turn, denying his part in whatever it is Snape is talking about. We, like Harry, can deduce they're discussing the necklace. Snape says, it was both clumsy and foolish. Already you are suspected of having a hand in it. Draco mentions Katie in his reply, confirming that they are indeed discussing the necklace. A chilling exchange ensues. Don't look at me like that. I know what you're doing. I'm not stupid, but it won't work. I can stop you. There was a pause. Then Snape said quietly, ah, Aunt Bellatrix has been teaching you occlumency. I see. What thoughts are you trying to conceal from your master, Draco? Mm -hmm. Draco says it's not about hiding anything from Voldemort. He doesn't want Snape, quote, butting in. This is also a real sign that Draco is a much more serious threat than we'd maybe ever previously given him credit for. He seemed at turns certainly a sneering bully capable of petty violence, but he seems really 
competent here. He's thought this through in a way that is surprising. Occlumency was something Harry, remember, could never master. But Draco here is managing to block Snape, who is no lightweight. This is highly alarming, giving us, and presumably Harry, reason to wonder if even the suspicious among us have underestimated the shape of Draco's scheme. Harry is stunned by everything he's hearing. Mm -hmm. Obviously, he's also like, yeah, this is what I thought. But the specific nature of it is shocking. Draco has always liked Snape. Why is he talking to him this way? What is Draco doing that requires him blocking others from invading his mind? This Mm -hmm. is highly ominous. Not just a confirmation of Harry's fears, but an elevation of them. I am trying to help you, Snape says. I swore to your mother I would protect you. I made the unbreakable vow, Draco. Other than the savage pleasure of feeling vindicated in his mistrust of Snape and Draco alike. This is, in essence, Harry's worst fear confirmed. Not only is Draco really working for Voldemort, but Snape appears desperate to help him, much like the events of Spinner's End, which we discussed at length. At length. (laughs) In our opening Half-Blood Prince pod, this sequence is masterfully constructed to provide the evidence Snape doubters and Snape believers alike wanted, needed. You could credibly make a case based on what transpires here that he's trying to use his role, his standing as spy to figure out what Draco's up to, or that he really wants to ensure Draco's success. We will learn in time that it's the former. Here, Harry obviously thinks it's the latter. Quote, looks like you'll have to break it then, Draco says, because I don't need your protection. It's my job. He gave it to me and I'm doing it. I've got a plan and it's going to work. It's just taking a bit longer than I thought it would. What is your plan, Snape asks. It's none of your business. If you tell me what you're trying to do, I can assist you. Hmm. Draco says, I've got all the assistance I need. Thanks, I'm not alone. This is not the same kind of prideful boast that Harry overheard Draco making on the Hogwarts Express in front of his girlfriend and his peers. Draco has really no reason to lie to Snape. Doing so, in fact, would be tantamount to madness. This is not only a teacher and someone he's long respected, but someone he knows to be a Death Eater, someone in Voldemort's inner circle. What he's saying is real, and Harry knows it. Draco is working on a plan for the Dark Lord, and what's more, he clearly has help. Enough Mm -hmm. of it that he's totally uninterested in taking any from Snape. He means Crab and Goyle, and as we will learn in time, he's using them quite strategically. But as we will see in devastating fashion at book's end, and as he will mention in mere sentences, he has also tapped into other help entirely, a circle of hell demons. He wasn't lying to Borgen when he said that he knew Fenrir Greyback. When Snape preaches the necessity of maintaining a convincing facade, saying, where do you think I would have been all these years if I had not known how to act? Which is, again, a very concerning comment in the moment, just in terms of assessing Snape's allegiances. He says, Draco needs better lookouts than Crabbe and Goyle, and Draco says, they're not the only ones. I've got other people on my side, better people. Again, Harry's worst fears about Draco's place in Voldemort's circle are being confirmed. But why won't he trust Snape? Who's pushing him to confide in him? There's a desperation to Draco right now that is truly alarming. From the book, I know what you're up to. You want to steal my glory. When Snape responds that Draco is speaking like a child and that he understands that, quote, your father's capture and imprisonment has upset you, Draco storms off. It's reasonable to think that Draco, like Bellatrix, resents Snape for occupying Lucius's previous position as Voldemort's most trusted lieutenant. And also that Bella has poisoned him against Snape. Surely that has occurred. It's really odd that Narcissa, who begged Snape to care for Draco, hasn't been able to get through to her son. Of course, we saw in Diagon Alley that Draco 
didn't want his mother witnessing what he was up to. Maybe he hasn't kept her posted on his plans. He's always been a pampered brat. But now after losing his father, he's been forced to stand on his own two feet to a certain extent to become a man, isolating himself from his mother and embedding himself further into Voldemort's camp. After Draco flees, Harry crouches, his heart and mind racing with the implications of what he just overheard as Snape emerges from the classroom. Quote, his expression unfathomable to return to the party. Jason? Yes? Hark, who's talking? Confunded anyone lately? <laughs> Don't you worry about what I'm pretending to tip into Ron's drink. Just toss the invisibility cloak over our heads and lead us into the restricted section to teach us what we need to know about Felix Felicis. Professor Slughorn's description of Felix Felicis when he introduces the brew earlier in Half-Blood Prince could apply to the broader art of potion making itself. It's a nuanced and complex process, difficult to master, disastrous if done wrong. But like Felix Felicis, it can inspire incredible magic if handled properly. Remember some of the words Snape uses way back in Harry's introductory potions lessons in Sorcerer's Stone. The subtle science and exact art of potion making. The delicate power of liquids, the beauty of the softly simmering cauldron with its shimmering fumes. There's a reason so many grown witches and wizards don't mess with potions. They're tricky and more mysterious than most branches of magic taught at school. But Rowling writes on Pottermore, while a number of potions duplicate the effects of spells and charms, permitting the witcher wizard to, quote, favor whichever method they find easiest or most satisfying to produce their chosen end, other potions produce unique effects. Some magical outcomes require someone to grab hold of a cauldron and start chopping up those ingredients. Polyjuice, for instance, which we covered in detail in a restricted section in Chamber of Secrets. And they include Felix Felicis, which appears only in prints but packs a great impact within that book. In the video game Wonderbook, Book of Potions, which was created in collaboration with Rowling in 2013, we learn the history and process for brewing the perfect batch of Felix Felicis. Potion was invented in the 16th century by accomplished potion maker Zygmunt Budge, who left Hogwarts at the age of 14 to spend the rest of his life experimenting in solitude. Despite all his successes and contributions to potion making, Budge singled out Felix and called it, quote, my masterpiece, the crowning achievement of my career. To follow Budge's guide and make the potion, the first ingredient you'll need is the egg of an ashwinder, a serpentine creature born from the remnants of a magical fire whose egg is also used in various love potions. The Felix Felicis recipe calls for the brewer to mix together this egg, a dash of horseradish and thyme, the bulb of a squill flower, part of a mertlap, and the eggshell of an akami, the beautiful bluish bird-like creature Newt Scamander has to hunt down in the first Fantastic Beasts film and stir slowly while progressively adding more heat. Finally, the brewer adds a sprinkle of the common rue herb, waves his or her wand in a figure eight over the cauldron and says, Felix Emperor. This last part is particularly important as Rolling Notes Quote, it is often asked whether a muggle could create a magic potion given a potions book and the right ingredients. The answer is unfortunately no. There is always some element of wand work necessary to make a potion. So, sorry listeners, you're not making Felix Felicis. And if you somehow track down an Ashwinder egg and an Akami shell, that means you cannot experience the sensation Harry feels in this book when he takes a swig. The attractive mix of euphoria and self-assuredness that nudges him on the right path throughout the potion's duration. Notably, his good friend Felix doesn't give Harry any new powers, but rather accentuates his extant abilities and makes him highly adaptable to change. 
As Hermione points out later in Prince, using Felix to try and solve the Malfoy mystery would be, quote, a complete waste of potion because it works best when the user needs to simply, quote, tweak the circumstances a bit. Harry, of course, will use the potion to convince Slughorn to part with the hidden memory, and his friends will use it to avoid the Death Eater curses the night of the Hogwarts break-in. But Felix brings side benefits, too, just by helping the user manipulate his or her context. When leaving the castle to head to Hagrid's hut for Aragog's funeral— Harry has taken Felix for the memory extraction, but just so happens along the way to facilitate Lavender's breakup with Ron and Ginny's breakup with Dean. So one person's luck is another person's lack of luck. (laughs) Felix sounds wonderful and it looks wonderful too. When Harry first sees it, he notices it, quote, splashing about merrily. It was the color of molten gold and large drops were leaping like goldfish above the surface, though not a particle had spilled. Even the potion itself seems lucky. But as with all good things, overconsumption is a danger with Felix Felicis. Too much can be toxic, Slughorn warns. And even before that point, it can cause giddiness, recklessness, and dangerous overconfidence. It is also, as we see in this section of Prince, illegal in competitions for reasons that are wholly obvious. Hermione is scandalized when she thinks Harry has slipped Ron some Felix Felicis before the Quidditch match, and Ron proceeds to play as if he's been infused with the exact luck and confidence the bottle provides, alas, That confidence was in Ron all along. And in this case, placebo Felix worked just as well as the real Felix would have done. Jason? Yes. Been kissing Pigwision? Yeah. Well, can you stop, please? Because it's time to split our nuggets, if not our souls, by sharing seven of our favorite insights and observations from Prince chapters 12 through 15, because seven remains the most powerfully magical number. I'll go first. Yes. Number one, when Harry spies Mundungus and Hogsmeade, Dung is chatting with a man that Harry recognizes as the Hogshead Barman. In Hallows, we will learn that this is Aberforth Dumbledore, Albus's brother. Aberforth will monitor Harry and co. in Sirius's mirror, sending Dobby to them for help thanks to Sirius's mirror, which, dun-dun-dun, Aberforth acquired from Dung right here. When Harry asks in Hallows how Aberforth got the mirror, he says, quote, bought it from Dung about a year ago. Albus told me what it was, been trying to keep an eye out for you. Speaking of dung and stolen goods, we must note another massive implication of his thievery. This one also surfacing in Hallows, when Harry, Ron, and Hermione ask Creature whether he stole back the locket that they threw out during the 12 Grimmauld Place cleanup in Order of the Phoenix. He says that he did, but that Mendungus then stole it, along with numerous other 12 Grimmauld Place treasures. After Creature tracks down Mendungus for Harry, they learn that he's already turned the locket over to... Dun, dun, dun. Dolores Umbridge. Number two, from the conversation with Mrs. Cole, we learned that Voldemort's birthday was on New Year's Eve, making him a perfect opposite to Harry, who was born exactly halfway around the calendar. Upon learning this, we have to reassess Professor Trelawney's Goblet of Fire inquiry to Harry. She asked, I think I am right in saying, my dear, that you were born in midwinter? Bum, bum, bum. Perhaps Trey was just detecting the birthday of the Horcrux inside of Harry and not Harry himself. She's good. She's pretty good. She's good. Number three. After Ron and Harry's encounter with Ginny and Dean, they're hurrying along a seventh-floor corridor when we get this passage. Oi! Out of the way! Ron barked at a small girl who jumped in fright and dropped a bottle of toadspawn. We will learn in time that this small girl is one of Malfoy's polyjuiced crab goyle lookouts standing mm-hmm. guard, as we will soon realize, in front of the rumor requirement, which we know is on the seventh floor. Number four. Another Trelawney note at the holiday party, she says, My dear boy, the rumors, the stories, the chosen one, of course. I have known for a very long time. Now, she is bullshitting and boasting in classic Trelawney two bottles of sherry fashion here, but 
she's actually right. She was the first to know, having issued the prophecy, as we and Harry learned at the end of Order. Number five. When Dumbledore shows Tom, young Tom, the burning wardrobe in the orphanage, Tom says, where can I get one of those? As we already talked about, referring to Dumbledore's wand. Well, we wanted to note that Voldemort will eventually literally obtain Dumbledore's wand, not this wand, not the one Dumbledore is holding here, the one that Riddle is coveting in this memory, because their first meeting here takes place before the mm-hmm. duel with Grindelwald in which Dumbledore will win ownership of the Elder Wand. But that wand, the Death Stick, which Voldemort will take from Dumbledore's tomb. Man, the Death Stick, what a fucking name of a thing. <laughs> Number six, when Ginny is dunking, having a dunk line on Ron, she brings up Aunt Muriel to the point that we can't help but wonder what makes this relative the perfect mark for such a dunk fest. Well, find out in Hallows when we meet the savage, extremely gossipy, and very rude Muriel at Bill and Fleur's wedding, where she shreds Dumbledore based on Rita's book and information she learned from an overheard conversation between her mother and Bethilda. Fucking Muriel. Muriel's tough. Very tough. Number seven. Since this stretch of chapters includes both ample Ginny playing Quidditch scenes and another mention of Gwenock Jones and the Holyhead Harpies, it feels like a perfect time to mention that Ginny will wind up playing professional Quidditch for the Harpies, the all-female Welsh team, after her Hogwarts career concludes. Amazing that Ginny is the one who went pro in that marriage. Is it? She's like a fucking... Harry's supposed to be like an all-time good volume seeker. Sc- yeah, but he was like... Other shit to focus on. He had on. other shit to focus on. And then on. Ginny turned to journalism. Yeah, it's pretty great. After that. She was she is she a is awesome. she could fill up the hoops though. She's incredible. Yeah. Mal, today's Jamie wants to know if you've got a picture of Annie Muriel stashed under your pillow. I do. Every episode we're gonna honor the person or I do who captivate us the most. And today we're dishing out some last minute points and awarding the house cup to Ginevra Ginny Weasley. Just an incredible stretch for Ginny in every respect. Yeah, just absolutely puts Ron in his fucking place for daring to try and shame her for living her best life. Completely owns him. She has just an exceptional showing on the Quidditch pitch. And what's more, she has embedded herself fully in the heart, mind, and groin of the Chosen One. Love her so much. Great work from Ginevra. All right, friends. You seem too busy to call Isaac Lee and Zach Cram, our indispensable producer and researcher, Pratt's. And we thought someone should. We hope that you had as much fun as we did today, that you're as excited as we are for the rest of this journey, and that you'll join us again on Monday when we will be discussing Prince, chapter 16 through 19. Remember to check out our trailer breakdown for Fantastic Beasts, The Crimes of Grindelwald, which you can find on the Ringer YouTube channel and all the Ringer and Binge social platforms. Mm-hmm. Till next time, remember, the omens were never good, binge heads. And now, young Tom Riddle, as played by Edward G. Robinson. Who are you? I have told you my name is Professor Dumbledore, and I work at a school called Hogwarts. I have come to offer you a place in my school. Your new school, if you would like to come. You can't kid me, see? The asylum, that's where you're from, isn't it? Professor, yes, of course. Well, I'm not going to see. That old castle wanted to be in the asylum, see? I never did anything to lay me back to Dennis Bishop. You can't ask them. They'll tell you, see?